Jesus, we turn our eyes to you, and it's good to know that as we do that, you are a living Savior, and in your face we do find glory and grace. Lord, I'm thankful that it's both of those. If all we found was glory, we wouldn't know what to do with our sin. But that we find grace in your face as well is such glorious good news. And so, we depend on you. We do find you ever true. And we're thankful that you've done everything we needed you to do to restore our relationship to our Creator. You are our Savior. You're our Lord. You're the one who is the anchor of our souls. You're the cornerstone, the sure foundation for our lives. Lord, would you this morning do a powerful work in our hearts as we go to your word in this powerful and central passage of all of Scripture? And would you help us to see your face more clearly and depend on you more deeply than ever before. Lord, the the passage we have before us this morning, it, it should radically affect every one of our lives, but we know we can be hard hearted or numb or distracted. We can be cynical. We can be sinful. We can suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but I pray that the Spirit this morning would use your word to change us. Every one of us, those sitting here who don't have a relationship with you, those who do but desperately need to hear the gospel one more time. And so, Lord, we pray that we would hear the gospel one more time and we would indeed turn our eyes to Jesus, and we pray these things in his mighty and matchless name. Amen. Well, sadly, these days, it seems like every couple of weeks you hear another prominent, well-known Christian deconstructing. That's the term now. We used to call it apostasy, (laughs) but now we're deconstructing. I don't know if you've ever seen the George Carlin bit where he talks about Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder sort of changing the vividness of what we used to call shell shock you know shell shock gets at the point of what war does to someone he said and then but we don't like how direct terms like that are and so it became battle fatigue and then it became post-traumatic stress disorder we're not even quite sure what it is anymore but shell shock sort of got at the point well deconstruction is now what we used to call apostasy turning from the faith turning our backs on jesus and it's amazing how people sort of make internet careers out of their so-called deconstruction now they're walking away from the faith and my heart aches when i hear these stories but I've noticed that there typically are several main reasons people say they're walking away from the Christian faith. It's usually sexual morality that the Bible teaches that they just can't handle anymore. 
It's the exclusivity of, of Christ that Jesus is the only way to heaven and the reality of hell. Hypocrites in the church, bad experiences they've had in the church, it tends to be those things. Do you know what I've never heard once as the reason for someone walking away from the Christian faith? Not once have I ever, ever heard them say, I look in the face of Jesus and I no longer find beauty. I look in the face of Jesus and I no longer find glory and I no longer find grace. I no longer find the truth in Christ. And it makes me wonder, what was their Christian faith all about in the first place? Because to be a Christian is to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and never be the same after that. <laughs> be transformed by that glory you behold. As we turn our eyes to Jesus, we find glory and grace. And that glory and grace becomes the defining reality of our lives. We're never the same after that. And once you see that, you can't walk away from it. If you've really seen it, if you really behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, if you find that he is the way, the truth, and the life, no other life will do but life in Christ. Well, This morning we find, as I said as I was praying, the central passage in all of Scripture that gets at the question of all of life. This morning, we are going to be asked a question that is the most important question in all of life. You will never hear a question more important than this one. This is the most important question, and your answer to this question this morning is the most important thing in all of life. It's a question Jesus himself asks, and we're going to find it here in Luke chapter 9. Beginning at verse 18. Help us, Lord. Luke 9, 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. <laughs> But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, and here it is. But who do you say that I am? And good old Peter, who has plenty of examples of striking out, hits a grand slam here. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Who do you say I am? That's the most important question in all of life. There are a lot of important questions in life. But I don't think any of those questions, what is the meaning of life? Uh, what about eternal life? What does it mean to have an abundant life? What's a successful life? What really matters in life? All those big questions that people have asked throughout of all of human history, none of them will be rightly answered until we get the right answer to this question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question Jesus is asking his disciples and every one of us this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? This is the question of all of life. This is where everything is defined. So who do you say Jesus is? It is so easy to come to God with our agendas of what he better be like if he's going to get our worship. It's so easy to come to Jesus conforming him to our inclinations of what he should be like if he should be followed and trusted, but we need to let God be God and let him set the agenda and tell us who he is, what he's like, and what he calls us to if we're ever going to live meaningful lives, if we're ever going to live eternal lives, lives fulfilling what he created us to be in the first place. So who do you say Jesus is? Kevin DeYoung is a pastor in Michigan, and he, in preaching on this very passage, wrote these words. And I want you to consider the challenge in these words. He says this, The greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his Son, And the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples is so important. Who do you say that I am? The question is doubly crucial in our day because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Almost no one is as popular in this country as Jesus Hardly anyone would dare say a bad word about him. It really is amazing. That even though people are increasingly opposed to Christians in Christianity, it's, it's hard to find someone to say, you know, I hate Jesus. Ah, Jesus. But, but Christianity, they'll do, they'll do that. But people generally want to be like the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, Jesus is just all right with me. I'm cool with Jesus. Jesus and I, you know, we're tight. That Jesus dude. He and I, yeah, we, we think a lot alike. People want to have a pretty good association with Jesus. As DeYoung said, hardly anyone ever say a bad word about him. But how many people know the real Jesus? There's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges for family values 
and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee only, loves spiritual conversation, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everybody all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you are. There's Touchdown Jesus who helps Christian athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christian athletes and, of course, determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's Gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks very German. There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. There's materialistic Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within and listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts them up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret, sacred place with him. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Not just another prophet. Not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they'd been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one from, uh, through whom God was going to establish his rule and reign, the, the one he, through whom he was going to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent. The Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. The Christ promised to Abraham, prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites. The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, promised to David. He was the king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection 
of our current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. I, I hope every one of you were, were bothered by one of those descriptions of Jesus as, as the wrong focus. Now, there's actually truth in a lot of those descriptions of Jesus, and you could probably argue that, that he, he, he would value some of those things we described. This is not to make a political statement, and that's the very point. Jesus didn't come to make a political statement. He came to save the world. Jesus came, yes, to give us a whole perspective on all of life that influences everything in our lives, from our politics to our entertainment choices. It affects all of it. But sometimes we get things out of proportion. Sometimes our message gets warped. And if we're not careful, we can start to conform Jesus to our image rather than be about being conformed to his image. What are you known for? When people talk about you, if you're a Christian, what are you known for? Is it your love for the Lakers? I mean, is that what you're most passionate about? Is it your political preferences? And again, these things matter. I'm not saying they don't, but do we have a proportional emphasis on and passion for Christ, the Savior of the world? Do we preach Jesus as the one who came to save sinners from a sure eternity in hell? Is, is that the Jesus we're known for? The one in whom we find the glory and grace of God definitively and overwhelmingly and wonderfully worthy of our worship. Jesus just fed 5,000. And now in our passage this morning, we have this scene we just read, sandwiched in between the feeding of the 5,000. And as Jackson said last week, Jesus is the bread. He's the meal. We're just the servers. That's what we are. We're offering Jesus to the world. He alone can satisfy their hungry souls. And so we offer Christ to them. We offer Christ to them. And that's what we need to be known for. The ones who are offering Christ to the world as the only one who can save them from their sins. That's who he is. He's the one who saved us from our sins. And before he gets on to the transfiguration, which follows after this passage, where he gives us a little glimpse into the glory that is always true of him, although veiled in flesh throughout his incarnate 33 years, we see this glimpse of Jesus about to come in the transfiguration. But in between that, before he shows them his glory, and on the heels of feeding 5,000 miraculously, he wants to make sure they know who he is. And so he says, who am I? Who do you think I, come? I, I am? And Peter gets it right. He speaks up. And he says, the Christ. Christos, the, this anointed one. The Messiah. You're the Christ of God. 
You are the one God sent, the one we've been waiting for for millennia, the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3 told us that the seed of the woman would come and the Messiah would be that seed of the woman who would come and he would usher in God's kingdom and bring salvation and shalom to our sin-sick world. That's who we've been waiting for and that's who you are. It's an astounding thing that Peter in all his brashness and arrogance and shooting his mouth off, gets it right this time and says, you're the one God has sent. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one in whom our hope alone is found. You are our hope. You are our faith. You're everything we've been waiting for. You're everything we need. It's astounding he says that. Now we all know if we know the story, Peter's got a long way to go. He has this wonderful realization. And and Jesus says to him in Matthew 16 in this same scene, oh, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but heaven did. You got that from God. Don't take pride in it, maybe, he's saying. But you're exactly right, Peter. You couldn't be more right in your answer to that question, who am I? He gets it right. He is the Christ. He's the one we desperately need the Christ of God, the anointed one. And please realize how powerful it is for Peter to say this. You all know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? His name is not Jesus Christ. He, he wasn't the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Yes, you know this. It's a title. It's a title. It's the anointed one. It's the one upon whom the Spirit has come to enable him to fulfill his ministry as the true and final prophet as the true and final priest and the true and final king who as the priest would represent people before God who as the prophet would represent God before people and as the king would bring his rule and reign into this world once and for all he's anointed sufficiently to do that he is the Christ the one with sufficient enabling from God through the Spirit to accomplish everything we need as the true and final prophet, priest, and king. That's who he is for us, the one we desperately need. And and this is the scene that defines it all. If you realize the way the Gospels plot along at times, you'll realize that, that Jesus is in complete control of his entire ministry, the the pacing of it, the details of it. He has begun, begun a journey to the cross in Jerusalem. In verse 51 of this chapter, it will say, and from that time, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He, he, he set his face to head in that direction, knowing the cross was coming soon. And, and I believe that's really the main reason he says, shh, don't tell anybody what you have come to realize. That's strange to us who have been given the message like, like uh, um, the National School Project. Decision point does, right? Um, they, they're calling people, Mark and Shelley are calling people to turn from sin and trust Jesus. And, and they're proclaiming it and helping people proclaim it all over the place. That's our job now. So it's strange when Jesus says, shh. Don't tell anybody. What in the world is going on? There's been a lot been written on what's called the messianic secret. 
Why would he want to keep it a secret? I I, I think he's keeping it a secret. Lots of opinions about this. But mine is that, that he's keeping it a secret because he's in charge of not just what he does and says, but the pace at which he gets to the cross. He knows when this goes public, especially among the leaders, the end is coming near. And so he's, he's controlling that pay. He's got, a lot, he's got work to do. This is the essential thing, but he's got a lot more to accomplish, especially the transfiguration and his suffering and death and resurrection and ascension that he says right here is going to happen. And, and he's got work to do to make sure they understand what it means to be his and what it means to say he is the Christ of God. He's the main point of all his teaching. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is the main point of his teaching. What does that say about Jesus' self-understanding? Imagine if I got up here this morning, or every time I got up here, and said, well, we're going to preach John 9, but I just want you to know that the main point will be moi. What I want you more than anything is to know me, to trust me, to uh, look to me for everything. Hopefully, you wouldn't give me 30 more seconds and you'd run me out of here as a heretic, right? Or a crazy man. But that's what Jesus does. He says, you you need to know it's all about me. Oh, I'll talk about lots of things. I'll talk about the kingdom and how it starts and how it grows and what it's like. I'll talk about how you should be as the church. I'll talk about all kinds of things. But what you need to know is that no matter what I talk about, the ultimate point of all of it is me. You know what you need to know about yourself if that's how you talk? That you're God. (laughs) That's the only way you should ever talk that way. And Jesus talks that way. He knew he was God. There's no doubt about it. Jesus knew who he was, and he wanted us to know who he is. He is God himself in flesh, and they have a growing understanding of this, the disciples do, but he wants them to know that this is how it is. And so once they get this in place, he still needs to help them understand what this means for him to be the the Messiah and for them to follow the Messiah, but now things move into a much faster pace. If Say you read the Gospel of Matthew in in a single setting. You get to this scene, and it's been plodding along, just moving along, and then it says, from this time on, After Peter gets it right, he began to teach him that he must suffer many things and he heads to Jerusalem. See, this is the peace that needs to be in place if things are going to head in the right direction. So this messianic secret means Jesus is in charge of the pace and the details of his journey to the cross. In verse 21, verse 22 describes what it means for him to be the Messiah. And you want to talk about defying their expectations. You know, they read about the Messiah being the one who would come and bring freedom and liberty for the captives and sight to the blind and all these things, and he does that, but he does it in, in, in a piecemeal way because he's coming again to bring the culmination of all those things, but his goal this time he came is to suffer, be rejected, and die. And this is the paradox of Jesus in his ministry. This paradox between his glory and his humility. His victory and his suffering. And what we find here is this central principle of the kingdom of God. And and it's this, that the way up is down. Unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. 
You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Good for you. Be the servant of all. Because in my kingdom, the first is last, and the last is first. And the greatest is somebody who washes feet regularly. <laughs> With humility, putting others' interests above his own. I was listening to an interview of a man who was part of a very um, abusive church for a while, and, um, and it was just amazing that he was part of this, and he didn't see this bully, arrogant pastor was just uh, asserting everything about himself. And he said there was a moment in one of the meetings where it all came clear to him. They were trying to just arrange a meeting where they, all the pastors could get together. And there was a meeting time that worked for well, like 20 of the pastors and not the senior pastor. And he said to him, come on, let's meet now. And he said, no, I'm not meeting now. It doesn't work for me. And he said, but it works for the rest of us. And the senior pastor said, don't you realize that what's good for me is what's good for this church? And the guy knew they had gone off the rails. He, he knew that they had diverted from this kingdom way of thinking and living. That the best leaders in the kingdom serve they pour out their lives like a drink offering. They, they don't serve for selfish gain. They follow the lead of Jesus who suffered and was rejected. You've got these three descriptions of what he's going to experience in verse 22. Suffering, rejection, and death. The evil human actions that lead to this, but then we have, and he will be raised by God eventually. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That's why. Because we need a representative to die in our place or else we'll have to die eternally. We need a representative to show us a righteous life and live one for us. And this will all depend on what you think your greatest problem is. What do you think your biggest problem is? And I know we have big problems. I've got big problems. But what's your greatest problem? There you go. Sin, a, a relationship with God that has been shattered because of sin. If we don't deal with that, all the other problems just pale in comparison and importance. Sin is our problem. The wages of sin is death, and we need to realize this. The wages of sin is death. You know, Beatrice Batson was a brilliant woman. She she actually coined the term collective bargaining. She, she was a, a scholar in the turn of the century. She, she was a, one of the main founders of what we call democratic socialism. She was a humanist, a socialist, brilliant woman. She was an economist, a philanthropist, a sociologist, a, human, she, a humanitarian. She was a brilliant woman. And she believed that we could solve all human problems with just human ingenuity and, and human social systems that'll fix it and government that does everything right. And she started off with great enthusiasm in that. But listen to what she wrote in her journal later in life. This is Beatrice Webb. L listen to what she wrote. In my diary in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. 
We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? She was convinced better social institutions were going to solve life's problems, but she's realizing the human heart is always running up against that. That that solution is missing the point that the problem is the human heart until sin in the human heart is dealt with. How can we ever make any improvements socially? She understood, and it's 1925. What has she not seen yet? The Holocaust. She may have heard of Hitler by now, but she had no idea it was coming. And she's still seeing the dismal prospect of trusting the human heart to solve our problems. So what do you think your greatest problem is? What do you think it is? I I must tell you, it's our sin, our rebellion against God, our rejection of God and his ways, which is why Jesus says, if you want to find life, you need to find it in me. We don't need more social systems. We don't need more government solutions. The problem isn't we haven't had quite enough education or if we just had a little bit better parenting or we we could solve all these problems. No, it's not economics. And all those things are good. Don't get me wrong. I love the liberal arts that I teach in. But until we deal with the sin we all have in our hearts, we will never find ultimate life ultimate relationship with God, which defines our lives. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Galatians 2.20 says, the son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. That's why he has to suffer and be rejected and die and why he needs to rise. And when we turn from sin and repentance and to Jesus in saving, trusting faith, all we're doing is following in his example, resting in his substitutionary work on our behalf. I've so realized in the study of this passage that the way you begin your life as a Christian is the way you continue your life as a Christian. Not earning anything, not demonstrating anything, but what do you do? Jesus says, here's what it means to be mine. You take up your cross daily You deny yourself and follow me. That's what he says. Daily. To become a Christian means you get to the end of yourself. You give up your autonomy before God. You give up your independence before God. You give up your efforts to solve your own sin problem before God and you wave the white flag of your insufficiency to solve your fundamental problem and you trust God's solution in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means getting to the end of yourself. It means denying yourself. It means taking a cross. You know, when when these disciples and Jesus... Jesus probably saw men crucified when he he was a little boy. The disciples had seen it their whole lives. They knew when they saw a man carrying a cross on his way to be crucified, that was a one-way journey. He wasn't coming back. And following Jesus is a one-way journey. There there isn't deconstruction. There isn't turning around. we, We fix our eyes on Jesus. And we follow him all the way to Jerusalem. That's where he sets his face to go. And we follow Jesus because he really is 
the one in whom we find God's glory and grace. He's the only one. We take up our cross daily. We take up our cross when we meet him for the first time. We get to the end of ourselves and we trust him in saving faith and then we continue to work that out every day of our lives. Not to earn anything, not to earn forgiveness or prove our righteousness. Jesus has done that all for us. But discipleship is not just raising a hand, walking an aisle, signing a card, or even being baptized. All those things can be wonderful points where we begin the journey after trusting Jesus and saving faith, but now putting that faith into action every day as followers of Christ, true disciples of Jesus, not mere converts who had an experience when we were eight. Jesus points us to a journey, not just a restored relationship with him. The restored relationship with him leads to a journey that's a one-way journey. Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we become people who don't just change our creeds and our beliefs, but our lives. And this may mean in this world a lot of sacrifice. It may mean in this world giving up a lot. But Jesus tells us that that's how we find life in him. By surrendering our wills, just like he did in his life. When he was a kid, he said to his parents when they found him in the temple, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? That's what I'm here for. And at the end of his life, what does he say? Not my will, Father, but your will be done. You see, we, we cash in our own independent wills. And now the will of our master becomes our will. There's no independence from him anymore, and that's a glorious truth. You don't want independence from God. That's what Adam and Eve wanted in the garden. And that's what the ongoing battle of sin in my own heart is about. I want independence from God. And that's not what we were created for. That's not where we find life. One pastor says, when Jesus set his face to walk the Calvary road, he was not merely taking our place, he was setting a pattern. He is a substitute and a pace setter. He is our savior and our example. Our salvation and our justification is a done completed work, to be sure. But discipleship involves an ongoing Devotion, an ongoing loyalty, an ongoing allegiance to Jesus. He's the one who saved our lives. And just like that man who had a legion of demons cast out of him, I preached on a few weeks ago, he wanted to go with Jesus. Of course he did. Who wouldn't after he saves you like that? But the fact is, as we said back then, we've all been radically saved if you are a Christian. We may have more dramatic testimonies or less dramatic testimonies, but we all have been radically saved, having been children of wrath, deserving the due punishment of our sin, but God moved in and saved us. And every Christian should have jaw problems because they can't get over how awesome it is that the amazing grace of God has moved in. Don't get used to it. Ask God to give you a renewed sense of how amazing his grace is. Following Jesus means he's done it all. But following Jesus means we continue to walk with daily, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We die to self. 
You know one of the most amazing things in church history? I, I think in the United States, the most amazing thing in church history, here it is. That African-American slaves came to embrace the religion of their slave masters. How'd that happen? You know how it happened? They saw Jesus in a way their masters couldn't even see him. Why? Because they saw in him a man of sorrows. A man familiar with suffering, acquainted with grief, and they said, I can relate to him, and he can relate to me. And the theology of the cross is a major contribution of, of African, African-American church history in our nation. And it's a beautiful thing to find out that Jesus is a man of sorrows. Oh, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, but he's a man of sorrows. And if you want to follow him, you follow the way of sorrow. Not even just your own, but the way of others' sorrow that you enter into and bear their burdens. And being a Christian means taking up your cross, but you come to realize that your cross includes helping others bear their cross. Our lives are supposed to be interdependently following Jesus in that way, and so we die to ourselves. Because we believe God has saved us and we believe God will satisfy us when we choose the way of the cross. Sin is a failure to be satisfied with God, a failure to find our life in him. And Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Who's more successful than Tom Brady in, in, from the definitions of success in our society? He's got every record the NFL possibly could have. Athlete of the year, more times a week count. Incredibly handsome, personable, wealthy, married to a supermodel. And do you know what he said a few years ago? Why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's got to be something more out there for me? There has to be more than this, he said. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his soul, loses his life. He he gives up his life for all the things just the world offers. Like the rich young ruler who walked away sad when Jesus said, Ah, I see what your idol is. Give up your possessions. And he couldn't do it. He walked away from the Savior sad instead of joyful in him. We need to realize that C.S. Lewis is right when he says, Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in aim at earth you'll get neither when we aim at heaven we don't sacrifice the pleasures of this world and the joys of this world but we put them in perspective moral living won't get you to god religious living won't get you to god faith in jesus alone will but we've got to get to the end of ourselves if it's true faith And without true faith, you'll only find, Jesus says, rejection at the end. He says, if your faith doesn't lead you to a kind of crosswalk of allegiance and loyalty, of not being ashamed of me and my word, like Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for all who believe. And when we're not ashamed of Jesus, we're showing evidence of our faith in him as the true Savior. And so, he says, finally, some of you will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come in verse 27. And there are lots of things written about this too, but here's my opinion about what it means. He says, Judas isn't going to see 
his resurrection and his ascension. Judas isn't going to see his, uh, day, his coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost like the rest of the apostles when the kingdom is ushered in in that way. But what we've got to ask ourselves is are we disciples or are we just religious people who had an experience? And those who take up their cross daily ask not how much can I get, but how much can I give? Ask not what's the safest thing, but what's the right thing? Ask not what's wrong with this, but what's the best decision? They don't ask for the easy way, but for the holy way. True disciples don't ask what comes naturally, but what is the holy way to live even when it defies what seems to come naturally? Because we depend on God's empowering presence to enable us to live as he calls us to live. And we all fail. Peter failed miserably. He denied his Lord even after this great grand slam moment. But Jesus forgives him. And we find out in, at the end of this book, Luke, that Jesus goes and he finds Peter before all the others, no doubt to forgive him, not to shame him. No wonder Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore when they see Jesus on the shore. He couldn't get, wait to get to the one who saved him and forgave him, even after he denied him. And the key is don't focus on what you may leave behind when you follow Jesus. Focus on what you gain, which is eternal life and abundant life now. Ultimately, we sacrifice nothing when we follow Jesus. Nothing. He's worthy. We follow Jesus in his way because he's worthy. And although his way leads us right to Jerusalem with him, it ends in glory with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. We get a lot of things twisted. We redesign what it means to be a disciple into religious experiences and moral living, being nice people, working towards social change when we've got much bigger problems than the things we see in the news every day. And it's the sin in our own hearts our broken relationship with you, and we're thankful that Jesus came to restore what had been tragically lost because of our sin. Lord, for those here this morning who've never trusted Jesus, I pray this would be the morning, and they would come and pray with those up front who are longing to pray with others at the end of the service. Lord, I pray that you would be working in all of us to give us a clear understanding, just like Peter needed to have clarification and throughout his life even corrected by Paul later, Lord, please help us to know that you're patient with us in our failure, even after we come to saving faith and we begin this journey with you of denying ourselves and taking up our crosses daily and following you. Help us, Lord, to be true disciples. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.